A week ago yesterday, something really stupid happened. My children asked to go swimming. As we don't have a swimming pool at our home, uh, we ventured to the Goddard Swimming Pool. I don't know if you remember a week ago yesterday, but if you don't, I'll tell you it was overcast and stormy. I told my children that, generally speaking, people would judge me as a parent for letting them swim in a pool with lightning coming down. They protested, and so we went anyway. While at the pool, uh, I was helping Grace with her swimming lessons, and I got out, and I I was going to use the restroom. And when I came out, of course, it was an overcast day, so I wasn't wearing my sunglasses And, of course, the pool wasn't very busy at all, maybe just three or four people in the pool. And so the lifeguards got bored, and there was maybe two watching the pool, and the remaining of them were playing wall ball up against the side of the the snack shop and locker room area. And so as I walked out, um, of course, the largest, the the guy who looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, kind of lifeguard, uh, was just at that point throwing a wet tennis ball as hard as he could uh, to bounce off the wall. And instead of bouncing off the wall, it bounced uh, square off my right eye. And um, it hurt a lot. Uh, for the rest, uh, I, I preached last Sunday because I went to my eye doctor. He kind of gave me a Band-Aid to put over the eye, and I didn't. it, it was okay. After church last Sunday, I went back to the eye doctor. He said, now i got to take this off so that the, the rest of the eye can heal. Uh, and he said, it's going to be painful. It's going to be a long week for you. And he was right. Uh, I went home and basically stayed in a dark room for the next three days, putting drops in and uh, keeping it covered. And so I tell you that story so that I don't have to keep telling that story. Uh, <laughs> few people have asked how the eye is. It's fine. Uh, there's no permanent damage. Uh, but as you may or may not have noticed, it seems like I'm a little squinty on the right side. Uh, that's not the injury. I'm just winking at you. <laughs> it is not lost on me, the irony that as we uh, are in a series on relationships, how much I realized this week how important it is for me to have both eyes working together. Even when I had this eye covered in a, in a dark room, when I would try to use this eye by itself, my brain didn't compute. My brain was not used to just having one where there used to be two. And it, it made me think just really how you and I are, what we're talking about in this series, are designed to be in relationship. We've already said many times in this series that in Genesis chapter 2, I don't know why it clicked so fast there, guys. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the scripture says that God spoke this of Adam. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Uh, he, He had been created by God. He had a perfect world that he lived in. Uh, everything that he needed had been provided, but he lacked one thing. He lacked human relationship. You and I need human connection. It strikes me that there are so many areas of life that, where God designed it that we just do better as a group, as, as a, a collection of people than we do individually. Whether that's a family that raises you, whether that's 
a school that teaches you, whether that's working on the job when you're on a project, trying to do it by yourself versus doing it with a team. It even applies to church. You know, there are lots of people that come to church, and even in, in a large group such as we have this morning, they still feel very alone. Uh, we have a need for relationship. We were designed to be in relationship. Just ask Wanda. Uh, Wanda was a 90-year-old widow, and she was lonely and desperate. And so one day, Marlene Brooks came home from work and found a note in her door from Wanda, her neighbor. The note simply said, Would you consider to become my friend? I'm 90 years old, all alone. All my friends and family have passed away. I'm lonesome and scared. So Marlene and her best friend decided to act upon that note. They took action. Uh, They went and visited Miss Wanda. And they even brought cupcakes, uh, which, if you don't know, is a sign of a great friend right there. Marlene wrote about that experience later. She said she was such a wonderful, sweet, kind-hearted lady. It was, she said when, we, when she opened the door, she was over the moon thrilled that we had come. And we visited with her, had a wonderful visit. And as we left, I told her that she could call us anytime. I left her my phone number and that we would be back to check in, just to see how things were going, to build that connection, that relationship. As I was reading the article, here is what Wanda said, uh, the 90-year-old. She said, I hope you didn't think I was stupid uh, for reaching out to you. She said, I had to do something. I've lived in this neighborhood for 50 years, and I don't know any of my neighbors. We are all designed for relationship, connection. And though we live in a world that's full of social media, uh, deep down... We understand that really doesn't cut it. Social media is not real. It cannot substitute for real kneecap to kneecap, eyeball to eyeball, human connection. We need to look people in the eye. We need to see an expression. We need to have a connection and have a bond. All human beings, whether they're age 9 or age 99, need that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, as we talk about that, i got to set a foundation, and we want to talk about this because it's very important that you understand as we talk about friendships and relationships, if you don't get this first point, uh, uh, all of your other relationships will crumble, and that is this. Uh, you've got to seek God before you seek anyone else. You will never, ever find security in any relationship Until you are secure in the relationship with your Lord and with your creator. If you try to substitute anything for that relationship, including human relationship, you're going to find yourself lacking. The most important thing in life is not success, making a great deal of money, fame, notoriety, or even having a family or a great number of friends. But the most important thing in life is to seek the Lord with all your heart, to seek him and have a relationship with him. Psalm chapter 27, verse 1, the psalmist wrote, The Lord is my light 
and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? The psalmist was clear, and we know that it's true. Unless we have a relationship with our creator, all other creation is going to leave us unfulfilled. In the New Testament, it says a little bit differently. James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure, I can because I'm preaching. The question is, when was the last time you talked to your Heavenly Father? I mean, not before the dinner table, not when it was expected, not when somebody asked you to pray, but just you and God spent time together. He desires that. He wants that so badly. He's moved heaven and earth to have a relationship with you. And the sad truth is, is that from time to time, all of us have been guilty of neglecting the most important of relationships. Oh, nothing will fulfill you. Nothing will sustain you like that relationship alone. So if you haven't done it recently, can I encourage you to do that today? Uh, Not here, but when you go home, when when you have some time alone... It doesn't have to be a great deal of time, but just say, Father, I miss you. I love you. And I want to have a deeper relationship with you than I do. And the scripture promises that as we draw near to him in prayer, in the word, that he will draw near to us. And I want to encourage you with that. I'm going to tell you a story, but... You all have to promise that if I tell you this story, it doesn't leave this room and isn't repeated to my children. Okay? If you agree to that, keep your eyes open. Okay, just a few that are disagreeing, but they were already disagreeing. Grace came home from school. She had a smile that was bigger than usual. She was walking on cloud nine. She was, you might just say, a little bit giddy. I said, Grace, honey, tell me about your day. And she almost did a twirl right then. She just said, Daddy, I love him. I love him. I looked at her and I said, you mean Jesus, right? (laughs) There was a little boy at her school that she was gaga over. And so I listened and she told me how wonderful he was. I made sure to get his name, address, social security number, (laughs) all identifying markers. And as we sat together, I smiled at her because I didn't want to discourage her, but I did say this, honey, there's only two men you need in your life right now, and that's Jesus and your daddy. Now, I meant that in a fun sort of way between a dad and his daughter, and I think every father of a daughter can identify with that moment when you're like, you like who? (laughs) But there's a lot of us who go gaga over a friendship, over a boyfriend, over a girlfriend, or even over a spouse, or sometimes over a child. And we, we let that relationship Come between us and God. Try to replace our relationship with God. 
And, and God has got to come first. And so what I tell, told Grace that you can never repeat is that her relationship with her Lord matters more than her relationship with anyone else. More than her relationship with her parents. Oh, I hope we have a close one. More than any other relationship with friends or Lord help us when she gets a boyfriend in about 20 years. I want her to keep her Lord first. Now, I want to pause here and say for just a minute, as we have some fun, that there are a group of people that face a lot of pressure within the church. And these people are single people. Whether they're single, divorced, widowed. um, It's hard for me to relate personally, but I know this is true. Sometimes they feel like a second class or a less than or a not enough because they don't have a plus one. Because they don't. A gentleman spoke to me and he's a good friend. He didn't mean it in a bad way, but he's recently widowed. And he said, he said, last week when you talked about marriage, he said that was tough. So it was really hard. And I just want you to know that whatever your circumstance, if you don't have a plus one, that you are still welcome in the kingdom of God. You are still expected to serve and love and use your gifts in the kingdom of God. And if I or anyone else at Northside has ever made you feel like you're second class, less than or not enough because of your relational status, I just want to apologize. Because we love you regardless of your relationship status, and so does God. Single people feel pressure from themselves. They feel that internal pressure. Sometimes they feel external pressure from their family. When are you going to bring me grandchildren? Well, when, when they're ready. Uh, sometimes they get that pressure from their friends who all seem to be getting married and Sometimes they get their pressure, sadly, even from church. If you've ever been a person at a wedding ceremony who's gone up to a single person and said, when is it going to be you? Or you're next. You should repent. Uh, Because they can be here and they can serve. And by the way, they can probably run laps around you. We'll talk about that. There's even pressure from places like Google. If you type in single Christian, do you know what you get in response from Google? A full page of all the ways in which they should be connecting, dating, e-harmonizing, Christian connection, and on and on. You've probably even heard people say, you know, I'm going to fix this person up with this person. Did you hear that? I'm going to fix this person up implies that in some way, if they're not with someone, they're broken. And that is not true. And it's certainly not biblical. Turn in your Bibles, by the way, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, and he is addressing a lot of different issues, okay? And we're not going to go through all of those. But he's talking to married people. He's talking to single people. And in chapter 7, starting in verse 7, he says these words. He says, I wish that all men were as I am. Now, what he's talking about there is his singleness. 
He said, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. He skips on down about verse 32. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now, what he's saying here is that the church is a both and proposition. In other words, it's not singleness or, or married is not one's not better or worse than the other. They are just different. And there is a place for both within the kingdom of God. Paul, for example, was single. He did not worry about the pressures of marriage and family, and he devoted his whole life to the king and his kingdom. He wrote much of the New Testament. He gave us much of the message that we have. Peter, at the other end, another apostle, he was married. He probably had a family. He didn't write as much of the New Testament, but he still had a role to fulfill. Paul says, uh, whatever place you're in, serve and serve diligently. And he says, I think from a place of bias, quite honestly, he's saying people who are single have this advantage. They don't have the... The stress and difficulty of worrying about providing for a family and taking care of family matters. And so we ought to honor single people. We ought to encourage them. And I hope that we do so at Northside. Whether you're single or married, we all need human connection, relationship. And so we're going to talk about that now. But I want you to understand that the first and most important is with your Lord. And that if you're single, you're not a second class. You're not a less than. Um, yeah, I can tell this one. You know, I've worked in ministry now full-time, paid ministry in the church for close to 20 years. And in that time, I've gotten to know a lot of other people who do ministry. And I would say 85 to 90% of them are married. And the reason is because when churches hire ministers... They look for someone, by default, who is married with a family. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if there was, I wouldn't be here. But some of the best ministers I've known are people like Jonathan Hannigan, one of our missionaries, who's single. Every time I hear a report of any kind from Jonathan Hannigan about his mission work, I'm exhausted just listening to it. You say, how can he do that? How can he run that kind of schedule, have so many people over? How can he do all that? The answer is, he's single, and he's devoted himself to the king and his kingdom. Okay? That's the difference between married and single. Both have a place in God's eternal kingdom. May we never make someone feel like a less than because of their relationship status. Now, once you enter in a relationship, be it friendship or beyond... Uh, this, this is true. We have a, uh, an interaction where there's risk and reward. And they have both. Uh, if you want to know how to be a good friend or have good, good friends, the book of Proverbs is the place you want to go. It gives a lot of wisdom. 
And Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, I think this proverb is telling us that you can be an extrovert, you can, you can know the world, you can have the world coming to you, and yet still come to ruin. Um, there can, even if you have a lot of good relationships, you can still have trouble. Or you can just have one, one faithful friend who never gives up on you. And, and in the time when you need him or her most, it can mean all the world. Well, what are some of the positives of, of a friendship relationship with a good person? It can provide help. Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 says, "A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity." Hopefully, if they're a God-fearing friend, they'll provide honest counsel. Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, "Oil and perfume make the heart glad, but the, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel." I ask you for, for just a moment. Do you have anyone in your life who will tell you the truth, even if it's the truth that you don't want to hear? I pray to God that you do. A good friend should be like a surgeon. Surgeons, of course, cut people all the time. But they do that for the purpose of healing. Many weeks ago, Lacey Shields had a back surgery, a pretty major back surgery for a 26-year-old of any age for that matter. She, she went in and a surgeon made an incision all the way basically from the top to the bottom of her spine to put rods and screws in and to straighten her spine right up. Now, when that surgeon did that, that was a major wound to Lacey's back. But because he was a good surgeon, the way he did it, she's now stitched up and healing and she's doing much better. The surgeon cut her to heal her. A good friend will do that as well. First Peter chapter four, verse eight says, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. And hopefully we have friendships that bring us a great deal of love, even at times and especially at times when we don't deserve it. The biblical examples, there are many. David and Jonathan, um, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy were separated by years, but they were very close as Paul mentored his true son in the faith, in ministry and in serving the church. Why then would there be any problem with having a relationship, be it friendship or otherwise? One simple answer. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. One translation said it ruins good morals. We've seen a lot of people who have been pulled down by a bad friendship. Uh, when I was in the fifth grade, for me, it was a guy named Carl Anderson. We were best of friends. We did a lot of things together, including getting in trouble. I know that's hard to believe for a preacher, but, you know, this is before I knew Jesus. Every day we would come into that classroom and we would cause our poor fifth grade teacher, Mrs. O'Neill, a great deal of consternation and heartache. And it didn't take the first 15 minutes of class before our name was on the board and we had three check marks beside. And that simply meant uh, we were had lost all recess for the day. Another check mark meant we were going to the principal's office. I did that many, many, many times until one day I finally put two and two together that when I was doing that, it was when I was with Carl. 
And I figured out that if I wanted to keep my recess and I wanted to stop going to the principal's office, I was going to have to break off my friendship with my friend. And that was hard. It's a hard lesson to learn at age 12. It's a harder lesson to learn at age 22. We've got to have good relationships because the wrong relationships can do a great deal of damage. By the way, teenagers, this is why your parents spend so much time trying to, or they should, getting to know who your friends are and paying attention to your social media and praying, praying that you choose wisely when it comes to a spouse, if you choose that in the future. Because they know that a bad relationship can do so much more damage than all of the good that can come from a good relationship. So we in Christ have to be what's called discerning. Now, the world says don't judge. Don't make a judgment about anything. The, the most oft-quoted, out-of-context scripture is Matthew 7.1. Do not judge. It's not even close to the whole verse, but they know that part. Do not judge. Which basically means keep such an open mind that your brains fall out on the floor. Jesus actually did say in the book of John, he said, stop judging by mere appearances and learn to make a right judgment. He was saying, use your mind, use your brain that God gave you. So when it comes time to consider a a friend or potential dating relationship or even a future spouse, I give you four questions to ask. uh, And hopefully this will help. Number one, are they good or evil? Well, that's a pretty stark contrast. I mean, and there's no one perfect. Well, 2 Corinthians 6.14, the scripture that was read says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with unlawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? John 3 verse 19 says, Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. A good way to tell if a person is good or evil is how they act, how they treat one another, how they speak to people, how they treat other human beings. And, of course, all of us have done evil at one time or another. But what I'm asking here is is the majority of their actions tend to be on the good side or the evil. As Paul would put it, the light side or the dark side. Question number two is, are they wise or foolish? Now, this is an important one. Proverbs 13.20 says, walk with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Now, you understand that I'm putting these in a certain order. There can be good people who act very foolishly. We have to be discerning, and we still have to keep our brain engaged. Even when we walk in the building of a church, we have to pay attention. Are they wise or are they foolish? And finally, uh, I'm not finally, but number three, do they sharpen you? Proverbs 17, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man or one person sharpens another. A good friend should be a person who hones your edge who makes you better than you were. Uh, We often, like water, sort of seek our own level. But Scripture calls us to seek people who are harder and are going to sharpen us. That's how you sharpen a blade, is against a harder surface. So I hope you'll find someone, someone like Nathan was to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the... Uh, Chapter 11 is the infamous story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba and all of the consequences of that. The end of that chapter, of chapter 11, it says simply this, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The beginning of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel starts with this, 
the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. And he said to the king, who I think was his friend, by the way, he said, I want to tell you a story about a rich man who had everything and a poor man who had nothing except one little ewe lamb. And a stranger came to town and this rich man decided he didn't want to sacrifice anything he had, but instead he took the one little ewe lamb from the poor man and sacrificed that so that the stranger could have a meal. And it enraged David. He said, as surely as I live, this man must die. And he must pay back that ewe lamb four times, fourfold. And Nathan looked him in the eye and said, you are the man. In that moment, Nathan was not just being a good prophet to the king. He was being a good friend. Kings are surrounded by people who only tell them what they want to hear or never tell them what they don't want to hear. But Nathan was a man who told the king what he needed to hear in that moment. It's interesting to me that the Greek word, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word for Nathan means a gift from God. Nathan told David the hard truth that he didn't want to hear. I hope you have people who will wound you gently. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you have someone in your life who tells you something you don't want to hear, you have someone who hopefully could be a friend. Now, there are people who feel like it's their calling in life to be surgeons, to cut people and to draw blood and to just point out the flaws with everything you do. I hope you don't be that way. But I do hope with your friendships that you can be like Nathan was to David and speak the truth in love. And finally, do they pass the triangle test? The triangle test is something I use a lot of times doing premarital counseling, but I think it works in any relationship. Before I get there, I want to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. The scripture says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, if you paid attention, Ecclesiastes 4 talks about two people. The value of two people. They get a better return for their work. They can keep warm. They can be more productive. They can stand up in a battle. But it ends with saying a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, And here's the threefold cord. It's God. It's you. And it's whoever you're in a relationship with. When I'm doing premarital counseling, I'm, you know, the future husband and the future wife. And And I'll say ideally in your marriage, the closer you get to God the closer you get to one another. The closer you get to one another, the closer you get to the Lord. So ask yourself this question. Does this person help me get closer to God? Or when I'm with this person, do they draw me farther away from his presence? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I have this little um, rope here. This rope is a chew toy by our... Uh, owned by our puppy named Charlie, uh, is quite disgusting. And he's in that chew phase, just chewing and chewing and chewing. 
And you probably can't tell from where you're sitting, but it's pretty ratty. And there are several of the strands that have been broken. But see, that's the thing about rope. Even if one of the strands is broken, they still pull together. It still holds together. If you have a relationship with someone where it's you and them and the Lord, hopefully that, that strand, even with two broken people, will stay together. The greater amount of load, by the way, that's put on a rope, the more that it draws those three together. I'll finish by telling you a story of a man who needed a friend. The first guy you probably know, his name was Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps is a world champion swimmer, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, 28 gold medals. The guy is a stud on the swimming level. But you probably know, and if you haven't seen the pictures already, that he also has a a big struggle with drug abuse, alcohol addiction. And in September of 2014, he was arrested for a DUI, and not long after, a picture came out of him smoking marijuana. And he said of that time, he said, I was a train wreck. I was like a time bomb waiting to go off. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. There were times when I didn't want to go on. It was not good. Phelps hit rock bottom after that DUI. And he basically isolated himself. In the days following the incident, he just stayed in his Baltimore home. And he didn't talk to anyone. He didn't eat. He hardly slept. And he considered ending his life. And so God stepped into Michael Phelps' story in a kind of an interesting way. He sent him a friend. Phelps' longtime friend, Ray Lewis, who's the NFL star and and an outspoken believer in Christ, came to his side. Before convincing Phelps that he needed to go to rehab, Lewis shared a few wise words with Phelps. He said, this is when it matters most. This is when you have to fight. This is when character shows up. Don't shut down. Don't give in. If you do that, we all lose. Thankfully, Phelps heeded his friend's advice. And as he went into rehab, he was seen carrying a book by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life, which was a gift from his friend. And that book talks about how your life cannot have purpose without knowing the Lord and without seeking out his purpose for your life. And after reading that, uh, while at rehab, he called his friend, Ray Lewis, to thank him. He said, thank you. You saved my life. And Lewis said, no, it wasn't me, but it's God working through me. I hope you all will be that type of friend to one another, and I hope you have that type of friend in your life. The most important relationship we have with God, and only Jesus makes that possible. I hope you'll seek others who encourage you to seek Christ. But I want to ask you this morning, I know Jesus is your friend. My question is, are you his? John 15, verses 12 and following says, This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. And this is what he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. Have you obeyed Jesus? Have you believed in him? Have you turned away from sin and been buried in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? If you haven't, You can't say that you're Jesus' friend yet because you haven't done what he's asked you to do. And I want to encourage you as a friend to become his friend. If you need a friend, you'll never know one like the good Lord Jesus. If you need him, please come as together we stand and sing.